everybody. Welcome back to Two Strike Noise. Once again, I am your host, Jeff Paulson. Sitting right there across from me is my co-host, Mark A. Johnson. Mark, say hi to everybody. Uh, Hi, everybody. Boy, is it great to be back here in the studio. Yes, it is. And we want to welcome you all back to your weekly look into the premiership of darts. This has been a very exciting week. Uh, We've, of course, been through uh, week 11, where phase one and two took us to Liverpool and Cardiff. And Michael... Well, Michael Van Gerwen, MVG, continues to dominate the premiership and reshape... Hold on. Are you talking about professional wrestling? Oh, that's Rob Van Dam, RVD. Um, Yeah, no, we're we're doing the darts podcast. Why are we talking about darts? Oh. um, We do a baseball podcast, man. Yep. Nope. Wrong. Wrong paper. That's, Are you doing that's another re- show behind my back? Yep. Oh, I do several. I oh. do several, and one. I, the darts one is right after this one. I got. Do you my do any that you actually up. distribute? Or uh, just the darts? Show? Yeah, the darts is actually uh, a TV show as well. It's uh, high viewership throughout the UK. So no darts. I will put that away. Yeah, let's I will do that keep later. That, yeah, I'll do that for another time. No, we're going to talk about baseball. Let's talk about baseball. That's yeah, what see, we always do. I know a little bit more about baseball than I do darts. I know just a little bit more than, than darts. Not much, but a little bit. But uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's jump right into uh, into BP, as we like to call it. A couple of, of nonsensical things before we get into our topics of the week. I have got some stuff for you, Mark, because... I know that you like uh, one Mr. Nolan Ryan. Yes, I do. I have got some really cool facts that I dug up that you might very well know, but I found these facts fascinating as to what a dominating pitcher he was. Okay. So, 1991, Nolan Ryan struck out 203 batters that season. He only allowed 183 total base runners. Wow. Do you know how old he was when he did that? Uh, I could do the mathematics, but I think it'd be best if you just told us. If I just told you. <laughs> he was 44 years old wow. when he did that. Wow. Th- that's incredible. It's hard it, to strike out 200 batters now is, even in this day and age, is hard when everybody's striking out. But and then to only give up 183 total base runners and to be 44 years old, that is incredible. Yeah, he, boy, the, the guy took care of himself like nobody's business. He swore up and down that his... Uh, what made him a better pitcher was how strong his legs were. His lower body strength is off the chain, and and that's why he was throwing still at the age of 44, just throwing BBs. So let me ask you this. Nolan Ryan in the Hall of Fame is wearing a Rangers hat. If you could choose what hat he wore in the Hall of Fame, what would it be? Uh, Mariners, for sure. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, no. Okay, no, I'm, I'm not thinking of the rules. Probably needs to be a team he played for. Yeah, I, I would have him in an Astros hat just because I love the Astros. So I, I really had to think about this when I, when I read this fact. Ryan, in fact, had his most successful seasons when he was with the Angels. He did. He did. Ryan, he had. Five all-star appearances, 138 wins, and 2,416 strikeouts with the Angels, which was more than his totals with any of the other teams that he played for. Yes. That is, that, that's strange. I, I could not see him in the Hall of Fame in an Angels hat. But, I mean, I was, I was 
not born or barely born when he was playing for the Angels. So right. it's kind of hard for me to, to, to picture that. Well, he, he started off with the, the Mets. He yep. was actually on the 69 Miracle Mets yes. as a rookie. He, he was, yeah. And um, so I, I don't think they're going to put him in the hall with a Mets hat on. So that one's out. The Angels make sense uh, because those were his best numbers. The Astros uh, works because I like the Astros, and uh, but he's in there in the uh, Rangers hat, so you know. Kind of weird though. It really, yeah, it, it it really should be an Angels or an Astros, I think. But you would think we, they don't. They never consult us on this stuff, and it's frustrating. I it don't is. Know why? I, you know, you'd think the Hall of Fame might just at least get our take on a few things now and then. Yeah. Don't they know who we are? Two strike noise, damn it! <laughs> exactly. So, a couple of other uh, really cool stats I found. So, over his career, Nolan Ryan had 198 non-win quality starts. So, first, let's define what a quality start is in terms of baseball statistics. A quality start for a starting pitcher is six or more innings pitched and less than three earned runs given up. Right. So. In those 198 career non-win quality starts, he was, of course, 0 and 107 in those games, because otherwise this wouldn't be a stat. But his ERA was 2.27, and on average, he struck out 9.7 batters in those starts. That is insane. That is some awful run support. With a (laughs) 2.27, you're going 0 and 107. Right. I remember those Astros teams of the 80s, not the best hitting bunch of, of players. Ever. Great defensive uh, players, uh, all around good guys, you know, and, and so on. But, um, boy, they in the Astrodome, which the fences were, you know, in the next county or something, and they were really tall fences, people just didn't hit home runs in the Astrodome. Total pitcher's park, and so he would lose a lot of games, two to one, one to nothing, stuff like that. Well, some other incredible numbers here. June uh, June 14th, 1974, Nolan Ryan struck out 19 batters. He walked 10. He faced 58 batters. <laughs> 58 batters. He threw 278 pitches in an Angels 4-3 to win over the Red Sox that went 15 innings. He struck out C- Cecil Cooper six times. What? Now, for this is only 1974, and he was allowed to throw 278 pitches. Like, I don't even think they I, let somebody in the 1890s throw that many pitches. Yeah, seriously, who was this? King Kelly? What, what was? <laughs> They're just giving him the ball. Here you go. Enjoy it, Cy. <laughs> My goodness, that's incredible. I mean. Cecil Cooper had to have, I hope somebody gave him some sort of an award because that's that's a golden sombrero plus two. That is not good. I, I wonder what Cecil Cooper's lifetime numbers against Nolan Ryan were. Well, I, I tell you what, I, the, the golden sombrero cars, let's go through this real quick. The hat trick is three strikeouts. You strike mm-hmm. out four times in one, games, one game, that's the golden sombrero. Do you know what five strikeouts is? Plat- well, it's got to be platinum. No, it's called winning the lotto because you hit 5K. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's just a little state lotto then. It's not like mega <laughs> <Right>. millions. <laughs> no, no, you can't strike out a million times. I mean, he could. 
Well, no, see, here's my thought. You win the gold glove, but then one person wins the platinum glove. So my thought was five strikeouts is platinum. Six is, I don't know, a diamond. This is six is going to be our challenge for the next show. What do you call six strikeouts in one game? We got to come up with the actual name and we'll, uh, we'll contact the Hall of Fame and let them know. Yeah, anybody wants to give us any suggestions, feel free to to you know slip into our DMs. We're we're friendly. Yeah, send Tell us, us what uh, you think. What you think six Ks in a game should be? That's uh, at two strike noise t w o strike noise on both Instagram and Twitter. May let let's maybe you know a hearty handshake, a high five, a pat on the back, an orange slice for whoever wins. A mention best suggestion. A mention. Yeah. That's probably the least we can do. Yeah. Uh, I got one more, one more um, cool Nolan Ryan story. Right, let's let's close your eyes and imagine if you can, because we never talk about this. Yes. Close your eyes and imagine if you can, Robin Ventura charging the mound <laughs> against Nolan Ryan. You would think that this horse has been beat so many times that it's no more longer times recognizable. Than he uh, Ventura in the forehead. But we're coming back to it at least one more time. So I think we're, well, you and I are aware, maybe not everyone is aware, that Nolan Ryan was not ejected from that game. Robin Ventura was, but Nolan Ryan was not ejected from that game. Um, Craig Graybeck came in to replace Robin Ventura on first base. So he came in as a pinch runner to replace Ventura, who'd been tossed out. Well, I didn't remember this, but Nolan Ryan promptly picked him off. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so through all that, that Robin Ventura was essentially an easy out. Uh, that season, Ventura was the only batter Nolan Ryan hit. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So was it intentional? I'm I'm guessing so. Sounds like it had a purpose behind it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, Nolan Ryan did only throw 66 innings that entire season, but right. still, I think that's pretty funny. It was clearly intentional. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Now, I believe uh, Nolan Ryan's last season, he was 137 years old, right? Uh, I, th- I thought he was actually still pitching. Oh, wait. No, that's Joe Lewis. I'm thinking. <laughs> Joe Lewis was 137 when he fought Rocky Marciano. Uh, what about George Foreman? He's still throwing The guy punches, that made right? the grill? Yeah. Dude, what are you talking about? Okay, back to baseball. <laughs> our our pugilistic podcast is later on this week. I actually have that. a I actually have a boxing reference in my uh in what I'm discussing today, so I don't know how that happened, but I like the term pugilism. Pugilism, yep. All right, so let's uh let's let the grounds crew uh drag the infield, move the batting cage back out there to center field. And let's jump into our topics for this week. Let's uh, let's see who's going to go first. I, I am going to flip the commemorative two-strike noise coin. On okay. one uh, one side is both of our heads, and uh, on the other side is Moogie. Yes. Um, that is tails, of course. So I'm going to flip it. You call it in the air. What you okay. got? Okay. I'm calling Moogies. Moogie, it is Moogie. So okay. you have won. Do you do you want to go first or? Yeah, I, I think I'll jump defer. right in here and, and do a little bit of a. I thought I'd talk a little bit about baseball terms, uh, what they mean and where they come from. We say a lot of weird things in baseball that we're, you know we're not really sure where it may have come from. But we just say it. You know, for yep. example, oh, like yeah. a Texas leaguer. Mm-hmm. 
Why do we little call bloop? Little Bloop single a Texas leaguer? Now this is this is going to be fun. Do I get a guess? Sure. Okay, now my my guess here is because I always imagine Texas League ballparks as being wide, expansive outfields where a bloop into the outfield that might be something that would be caught in a normal size stadium falls for a single. Wow. Dude, I am so impressed. I mean, you're wrong, but I'm so oh, impressed. That that was a great tale, though, it wasn't really it? It really was. And that's half of this stuff it is based on, like, that baseball terms, a lot of them are based on stuff that never really happened. So uh. it makes it even more difficult. Okay, but the, the bloop single, the Texas Leaguer, actually goes back to 1901, a player by the name of Ollie Pickering. Don't see many Ollies anymore. Not enough. Not yeah, enough. We need some Ollies. Um, Ollie Pickering was actually the very first hitter to ever walk up to the plate in the American League. So hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting. But he is the guy that that uh, they named the uh, the Texas Leaguer after. He actually had come from. He was a he was kind of a legend in these in these minor Texas leagues. And uh, Pickering was very sought after. Cleveland signed him, and when he uh, he led off for Cleveland, this is um, by the way, this is not the they, they're not the Cleveland Indians yet. They're the Cleveland Blues. Nor- nor the spiders. No, 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 not the spiders. Pickering wouldn't have played for the spiders. He'd have got traded for the to the good team. To the uh, I've forgotten what they are. Or the perfectos. Yeah, Was the, that who the the team with all the good players? <laughs> Once I tell a story, it's out of my mind. I can't remember back that far. Well, it's been saved for posterity's sake as a podcast, so we can always go back and look. <laughs> this is where I'm getting at. Took the long road, and I'm here. Um, his first. Seven plate appearances. Mr. Pickering hit seven bloop singles. So he came to the plate. The first seven times he came up to bat in the American League, he hit seven little bloop singles into the outfield. His teammates uh, were a bit irritated, but also impressed. <laughs> and uh, hey, you've, you've gotten seven straight hits. I'm mad. What yeah, the well, hell? <laughs> I, I think they were, they were going... Wow, maybe this is the secret to baseball, and we didn't know it. You know, <laughs> um, so they named it after him. They they started calling those little bloop singles Texas Leaguers, named after the type of hits that Ollie Pickering used to like to hit. But was he from Texas? Like, why? Where's the Texas come in? He played in. Uh, he was kind of a legend in the Texas minor league system. Ah, okay. a lot of Texas leagues. Hence, Texas Leaguer. Got it. All right, now I know. Okay, so here's here's another. Now this one, we all know what a walk off is, right? Home oh run, yes, we, well, but let, let's explain though. Just okay. I've been made aware that sometimes we spit out some baseball phrases that not all of our listeners know what they are. Oh. So let as we know it today, because I know the answer to this one already. But I'm gonna just as we know it today, a walk off is when a batter hits a puts a ball in play. Usually it's a home run, but it can be anything that the winning run comes around to score and the game is immediately over. That is right. what we refer to as a walk-off. Hence, the pitch, pitcher walks off the field without getting the last out. Correct. Yes. Okay, which is actually, it's correct. Ding, 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 you scored. But I found it funny that there was a guy, Dennis Eckersley, one of the great mm-hmm. relievers of all time. Dennis Eckersley, you've heard of him? I have heard of this this long-haired the mustached gentleman. Long-haired hippie freak like myself. Um, 
he swore up and down that when he, he talked about a walk-off home run or a walk-off play, a walk-off piece, as he called it, what, what that meant was that was the ugliest piece in an art gallery. You would go to an art gallery, see the ugly piece, and you would walk off because it was so ugly. <laughs> I kid you not. I found this in three different places he referenced that. That's so, where, like I've heard him many times describe walk-offs, which, which he kind of brought into the baseball vernacular after the 88 World Series when Kirk Gibson hit that walk-off home run off of him. I wasn't going to bring that up. I, I appreciate that, but you know it's it's a great moment in baseball history. That's that I've never heard this art <laughs> reference before. Yes. It's it's a very colorful reference. That in the uh, the quote here is this is from the Boston Globe. Eckersley says it was always walk off piece, like something you would hang in an art gallery. The walk off piece is a horrible piece of art. Yeah, because you know when I think of Dennis Eckersley, I think of a somebody that's going to a lot of art galleries uh carrying around a glass of of chablis as he looks <laughs> over the the latest uh jackson pollock uh offering i mean <laughs> yes which the last jackson pollock was a walk-off piece i just didn't really enjoy it that much <laughs> yeah it's not his best work yeah so you were actually accurate on that one but i, I had to share with everybody that there was a different definition it was a little <laughs> off uh okay what about southpaw you might know this one well i know what a southpaw is southpaw is a left-hander yeah left-handed pitcher i i remember specifically looking this up at one point but i do not remember okay in the days before there were uh you know lighting in major league ballparks they were they would play in the afternoon so the field would actually be set up so that the batter was looking east towards the mound so that you didn't have the sun right in his face the whole time. Got and it. so with the pitcher, uh, they were facing west. As they look into home plate, the the left arm would be on the south side of the diamond. That's, that that's sounds, the southpaw. Okay? That and sounds legitimate. Absolutely and completely not true. <laughs> You're Somebody setting me up. I mean, it, that it sounds works. like a that, that to me sounds like what I looked up and saw, and I went, well, that right. sounds good to me. But the problem is that uh, the the term southpaw predates pitching, predates baseball as a boxing term. Um, and in baseball, the uh, the whole idea of a southpaw or a southpaw stance was actually applied to position players and hitters before it was ever applied to pitchers. So the mm-hmm. idea that it was because of where the mound was set up just isn't true. It's just a, a borrowed uh, phrase from boxing, from pugilism. It's a <laughs> good word. Good a left-handed word. pugilist was uh, a southpaw, and that's how it just became from translated from boxing to baseball left-handers. The uh, the the story about the sun coming up and not being in the batter's eyes, though, I like that better. So we're going to stick with that. I I like that one much better. Yeah, and most parks are still set up that way, so Absolutely. that so that. So that you don't have, you're not look. I mean, the the right fielder usually ends up with some sun in some of those late afternoon games. But yeah, I yes. like that one better. Yeah. So that was, I thought that was interesting. So you can you can either tell the true story or you can stick with the one that got assigned to it later. Nobody's you know nobody's going to question you. you. You're a you're a baseball historian. They can't question you. And if they do, you can tell them that we gave you the okay to tell that story. That's that's right. 
So there you have it. How about how about this? How about can of corn? Okay, now this one I know. Okay. So back in the olden days at stores, there would be stuff on the top shelf that people couldn't reach. And so the person that ran the store would come by with a long stick of some sort and they'd knock the can over and they'd be wearing an apron. And so they'd hold the apron out to catch the can. And it was just like an easy catch. So it's a can of corn. Wow. Okay, man, I'd like to tell you you got that wrong. (laughs) Oh, wait, I got that one right? Yeah, you got it right. All right. Ding, ding, ding. But yeah, it goes back to the 19th century, exactly like you said, uh, groceries or general stores. They would stack their merchandise up really high. And so to get down a can of corn, they would take a curved stick, knock it down, catch it right in the apron, easy catch, just like a lazy fly ball to the left, as long as it's not a Texas League single. (laughs) <laughs> all right i knew i i figured that one was going to come up that's one of my favorite ones to tell people about now can you tell me what city the baltimore chop came from well i would say it's baltimore because that's where i remember people telling me about orioles teams that would a baltimore chop is is kind of just hitting it straight into the ground and using your speed to beat it out but Something tells me that it probably didn't originate there. Well, you would like to think the Baltimore chop came from Baltimore. And it it did. There's nothing exciting about this whatsoever. Oh. Um, <laughs> the Orioles team uh, back in the, the late 19th century, they had like Wee Willie Keeler and John McGraw. These guys were quick. They would uh, they would talk to the groundskeeper and have the groundskeeper just pack the dirt rock hard right in front of the, the home plate. So they would swing down at it as hard as they could and get a huge bounce out of it. It was uh, part of the offense for John McGraw's Orioles back then. And uh, that's where Baltimore Chop came from. We still use it to this day, although I don't think it's done um, intentionally all that often. It still no. happens. Yeah, yeah you, you hear an announcer say it every now and then, but it's clearly just somebody has gotten on top of a ball and <laughs> hit it straight down and it's popped up. Yes. That's it, interesting that they got the groundskeeper involved. I think I've also seen um, like at Ty Cobb used to have the groundskeeper get the ground by home plate wet so it would slow down his bunts. Um, and then there's the infamous story of manager Maury Wills, who uh, decided he wanted to get his player, let his players have a shot at hitting a curveball before it hit, took its big break. So he had the grounds crew extend the batter's box <laughs> towards the mound longer than ah. it was regulation supposed to be. And what do you know? He got caught. Shocking. These guys are standing <laughs> out in front of home plate. <laughs> they're, they're outside of the, the, the home plate cutout. They're on the grass. They are. But they, the groundskeeper extended the, the batter's box so that it was longer. And what do you know? People noticed. Well, so the grounds crew often can get involved. And this is, I mean, this is completely legal. It still happens to the to this day. I'm sure. You and I actually discussed it last week when we were both, when I was in Seattle and we were at a Mariners game. The, the, the grounds crew can wet the infield down. And, mm-hmm. and by doing that, if there's speedy people, that'll, that'll tend to slow them down. They can determine whether the foul lines in the infield, which way they kind of slant. Mm-hmm. So if the home team has a lot of guys that can bunt, they'll often slant it in. So as the bunt lays down, if it goes towards the line, it'll tend to stay in play. 
And then, of course, there's always just the length of the grass. I mean, grounds grounds crews cut the grass every single day, whether there's a game or not. But depending on what kind of team they have determines the length at which they will cut it. If they've got a quick team, they'll cut it down really low so that the ball goes faster off it and it'll get through the infield and, and maybe through the outfield to the wall faster. But if it's longer, it'll, it'll, it'll kind of hold up and, and slow things up, which I don't know why you'd want to do that. But all that is perfectly legal. That's that's good stuff, except for you know Absolutely. extending the batter's box. You know, you, you you want to make friends with the groundskeeper, and uh, you know, generally your your grounds crew is paid by the same team that's paying you. So you're, <laughs> yes. uh, you want them to win. You want to see success happen. You get a ring too. Yeah, there you go. So uh, just a couple more terms. Uh, did you know that hot stove league is actually an old term? <sighs> I I. Did not. I know what it is. So I know what it is, but uh, you're going to explain that. But I did not know where it came from. Well, hot hot stove league is where when it's not actually baseball season and there's always discussions about trades, the direction a team is going, free agent signings, all that kind of stuff. What if this team made this move? What if they made that move? Do you think that's a good accurate description? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Here's the weird thing. The hot stove league was an actual league. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was basically players would go back home when it, when the season was over and they would still to keep in shape or to keep their themselves uh, playing in, in, and in playing condition, they would go and play in these winter leagues and they would play out in long, cold off season. They would play out in the, in the cold in the winter and the fall and they would come back in and warm themselves up next to the hot stove and it's hot stove league. Got it. That makes sense. That- yeah complete sense i did not know that i was uh I, I was pretty excited to find that out um but it wasn't what i thought it was they did not have twitter back then apparently oh so i thought they were all you know tweeting each other about who was going to sign where and stuff like that but they were just just, just they only had myspace that was they, it <laughs> this was from the myspace days yes <laughs> absolutely um last one and i thought this was very interesting the ephus pitch yeah, okay. the EFIS. Uh, for those of you that don't know what an EFIS is, it's when a pitcher rears back to go and throw as hard as he can, but instead he just lets it fly, like a like a little pop fly to cross the plate in an arc, like a softball pitch. Hence the EFIS. And uh, it happened that the first guy to throw an EFIS that we know of was a guy named Rip Sewell. He was a starter for the Pirates in the '30s and '40s. Rip Sewell was a good pitcher for the Pirates. But he went hunting one off season and uh, was in a shotgun accident, taking fourteen shotgun pellets into his right foot. What is he? Is he? Is he hunting with Dick Cheney? That's what I was thinking. I looked it up. I couldn't find any correlation to him knowing Dick Cheney. <laughs> but it could have been Dick Cheney's dad. Or did Dick Cheney have a dad? I Dick Cheney I was old. No, Dick Cheney. No, he was just spawned. <laughs> uh, well, I hope he listens to the show, regardless. You know. Oh, I'm sure he does. Oh, yeah. Um, Anyway, so he came up with this lob pitch to keep players off balance because his velocity wasn't what it used to be. And so people, what is that? What do you call that? And outfielder Maurice Van Robes, I think that's how you say it, uh, said that's a nothing pitch. It it translates as EFES, which is E-F-E-S is a Hebrew word for zero. Ah. So EFES is actually Hebrew. And so when you throw an EFIS pitch, you're throwing a zero pitch or a zero speed pitch. <laughs> Very nice. That there you works. Go. 
And that's pretty much all I have as far as baseball terms. I got some more stuff to talk about later about different types of translations. But I think you should uh, I think you should take the floor. I yield the remainder of my time, Mr. Speaker. Thank you very much. So I have got a topic this week from my end that hits close to home. Something that was a big part of my life. Not so much anymore, but um, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, all through college for me, this was a big part of my baseball life. I'm going to talk about baseball cards. Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> I originally thought baseball cards started just with tobacco like in in the early 1900s but I was as I am with so many things wrong my wife can tell you that uh, I was actually wrong by quite a few years so shortly after the civil war baseball themed pictures started to become popular and they were distributed on, on what were called cabinet cards these were actually you know proper pieces of art whether it be about baseball or or people or whatever but they were large and they were pasted on a cardboard backing and they were meant to be displayed as the name would insinuate in a cabinet. Uh, there were also miniature versions of these called carte de vista, I think. I don't know. I, I can't even tell if this word is French or Spanish. But it, it might be Swahili. It, it might be. Basically, it means a smaller version. Okay. And these were often the same things, just a smaller size, and they were meant to be just giveaways. They were not thought to be collectible, they were just giveaways. So next came trade cards, and these started in the 1860s, and these were used as advertisements. So they were handed out free on the corner to people. On one side would be a picture of a famous player or a team, and on the back would be an ad for you know, Joe's Furniture Store, Sally's Candy Shack, the Chuckle Hut, whatever. Okay. But that, that was basically the first kind of player card that was handed out but there were no stats it was it was mainly advertisements besides baseball players they might also depict animals comics presidents etc so there was a wide range of what was on the front a lot of these cards would be used in scrapbooks so now a lot of cards that you find from this era are actually damaged on the back where they were pulled from a scrapbook so there's some glue residue back there which obviously decreases its value. Sure. Let's now jump to the 1880s where cards started to be mass produced. The Goodwin Company issued what is now known as the Old Judge Set because they were found in Old Judge tobacco products. They were put there as a stiffener for the cigarette packs. So they were it was really utilitarian, not oh. You know, wasn't there because, hey, buy this and get a, a baseball card. It was there to keep the pack stiff. Interesting. Yeah, I, I did not know that. The success of this practice led to others following suit, and pretty soon there were baseball cards everywhere. They became really popular. They were included uh, afterwards, not just to stiff in the pack, but, you know, people then did start to buy things in order to get these cards. In the late 1890s, the American Tobacco Company was formed. Now, this is essentially every single tobacco company in the country combined into one big one. They all just said, screw it. Let's become a big company. <laughs> For some reason, I think that's illegal. I don't know. Yeah, well, you, it, it, it certainly is now. But at that point, just like owning two teams and trading all your good players to the, to the good team, right. it, was, it was game on there. 
So since there was now only one tobacco company, there was no need for promotion since, you know, they were the only gig in town at this point. So they stopped producing cards. They didn't need them. Everyone was going to buy the, the tobacco anyway. The early 1900s. Now, this is considered the golden age of baseball cards. The American tobacco company monopoly is broken up by Congress. There you go. So all these new companies return to the proven method of using baseball cards to promote their products. And now included in this kind of time frame of cards is the card. And by the card, I mean the 1909 T206 Honus Wagner card. Yes. I guarantee you, if this is the first thing you've ever heard about baseball is listening to my voice right now, you have seen a picture of this card. Yes. There are only known to be about 50 of these in existence today. There weren't that many in the first place because their run was stopped short. And, you know, over the last hundred years, these things get thrown away, discarded, lost. Just it's just painful to think of, but go on. It is. So the this T206 card now sells for more than $2 million a piece. It is the poster child for baseball cards as an investment. Yes. Uh, from there, the history of baseball cards moves kind of slowly. World War I slowed the production of cards. Tobacco eventually completely removed them from their products. But candy manufacturers stepped in to take their place, especially caramel candy for some reason. Huh. Uh, we're, we're big fans of the baseball cards. The 1930s, there uh, after the World War was over, there was again a glut of card companies. Uh, they started to produce more colorful pictures. So the Gowdy Gum Company of Boston gets into the business, and they are actually the first card that was included with gum. So they're a gum company, so they started to put their gum in with a baseball card. Then another one of those pesky world wars came about. Paper again became scarce, and so did cards. We move now into the late 1940s, and a couple of big players started production for the first time. Both Bowman and Leaf produced their first sets. Now, both of these companies produced sets on and off, you know, up until today. Some important cards of these sets include Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays rookie cards, which are obviously very sought after still. They also produced a Satchel Page, doing air quotes, rookie card, uh, which is another one of those that is still highly sought after. Then everything changed in the 1950s. The gorilla in the room arrives and Tops produces their first set. Ta-dum. There Tops. it is. There it is, yes. Now, actually, it's the Tops Chewing Gum Company of New York City, to be precise. I did not know that that was their... I just knew them as Tops. Hmm. But obviously, you get where the chewing gum comes in because they're famous for that rock-hard piece of, of gum that, you know, up until... 10 years ago was still included in every pack yeah and everybody had a, a friend that would eat that stuff loved the yeah. rock hard i was i i was that friend you I, were i would totally i you chew it for like 10 seconds but i would always put it in my mouth now, you know how you would go back i'm getting off subject a little bit but when you when you would go back and buy like cards from a previous year you know yeah. like it might be 1988 but i'm buying some 1983 tops cards yeah. and the gum was still in there and my buddy would still, the older it was and the nastier it was, the more he'd want to chew it. Well, it would fall apart. After a year or two, it would just, it was so brittle. 
Yeah. You would have to, like, you'd be eating crumbs. He swore it gave him superpowers of some kind. I never saw Nick have any superpowers, though, so, you know, maybe he was pulling my lariat. I don't know. He had an iron, I was going to say stomach, but I hope he didn't swallow that, because that's still in his stomach if he swallowed it. This is an interesting guy. He, uh, He chewed really old baseball card gum and ate Fig Newtons all the time. Anyway, back to your story, man. Boy, I would much rather chew that baseball card gum than even put a Fig Newton near my mouth. Those are those are my least favorite cookies. Listeners, of all please time. send Fig Newtons oh, to Jeff. He loves geez. them. All right, back to tops. Boy, now see that's totally thrown me off. Fig Newtons, I got Fig the Fig Newton gum. Mm. <laughs> so, um, 1952. Still regarded as one of the greatest sets of all time. That's the Topps' first first issue that they put out there. They are the only company to still release sets every single year up to this current year. They're still putting them out. The 1980s was the heyday of baseball cards. Everybody was producing sets. Flair and Donruss were big. I collected both of those as well. Mm -hmm. The late 80s, Score and Upper Deck joined the game. 89 upper deck that was a big deal yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about them here in a a, a minute um so eventually there were just there were too many because like i said everybody was producing sets of baseball cards and so there were just so many that nothing was rare i mean except for the odd billy ripkin you know what it said at the 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 bottom you know on the the billy ripkin nickname card it's yeah we won't say what it said but it was a not a great look for billy ripkin and what was written on the knob of his bat um you know the the market for cards just kind of bottomed out um cards today though are absolutely incredible i was almost almost lured back into buying a box this spring the tops cards this spring are absolutely gorgeous yeah. And people were posting pictures of them, and I'm like, I I was weak. And so I actually started going and looking to buy a... I don't buy a pack. I buy a whole box. Sure. $150 a box. I said, no, no thank you. I'm not <laughs> that... Yeah, well... Not that excited about it, but there's some beautiful cards. But now they... I mean, they're so incredible now. I mean, they've got cards that have pieces of game-worn jerseys and game-used bats in it, just little slivers. So, I mean, you could get a card, literally, and and they have them with a game-used jersey from Mickey Mantle. I mean, that's just incredible. They're just really cool stuff. It is. It's amazing. So, if you've ever collected cards, you know the name Beckett's. Uh, Beckett's is a the, the the baseball card collectible Bible kind of uh, a subscription to Beckett's was every year was my like my best birthday gift growing up that was my favorite gift. James Beckett was a collector in the seventies and he became frustrated by the wild fluctuation of prices that you know he he would see from store to store so he just started to print his own guide and those prices were kind of what everybody settled on beckett's is still in i don't want to say publication because i don't think they actually publish it anymore but they're now a web-based service that you can subscribe to where you too can find out just how little your box of cards from your youth are now worth So I found a really good quote kind of to go along with that from Dave Jameson. He wrote a book called Mint Condition, 
which is obviously about baseball cards. And he said, quote, when 30-somethings ask me why their rookie cards from the 80s are next to worthless now, I tell them that's because we were all aware of them as investments as children, and those cards never had the opportunity to become scarce. And I understand completely what he's saying here. I mean, when I was collecting cards, I wanted the whole set. I loved looking at the the pictures, learning all the players, looking at the stats. But also in the back of my mind, I'd get a good card and I'd go, oh, that might be worth something someday. So I was never attaching them to the spokes of my bike. I was never using them as bookmarks. I wasn't, you know, flipping cards at, at stuff. All my cards are still in great condition because I was always aware of that. And I think that that absolutely rings true that kids were a little bit too infatuated with, you know, the monetary, oh, uh, man. you, you know, aspect of collecting cards rather than, hey, this is my favorite player, even though he's, right. you know, a common, which is, you know, a baseball card term for somebody that's you know not worth anything i'll trade you this for this you know it was always yeah not not the highly collectible players a yeah. common card would be you know your average i shouldn't say average player because there are no average players, garth but... iorg garth iorg was a common <laughs> yeah. player or dane <laughs> so today though prices still fluctuate incredibly so i have got several ricky henderson rookie cards so I'm talking about a Topps 1980 number 482. It is a it's a beautiful card. It's a great picture of him in spring training. Great uniform. I love this card. So none of mine are graded. I you know, and I don't care cuz I'm never going to sell them unless, you know, I become hooked on meth again and I need some really quick cash. Well, there is you, that. You could the meth sneaks up on you, so you, you never know. But I looked him up. I looked this card up online, and I found them for sale, ranging from twenty dollars, which I was actually pretty happy about. I didn't think it would be worth that, up to twenty two thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! I think that person might be, you know, kind of <laughs> overshooting what the, what it's actually worth. But if anybody wants to buy a couple of cards for that price, I would be willing to sell for that price. They're only twenty two grand. Only, yeah, just a little shy of twenty three. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me go through my. Uh, I got my curse jar over here. Wait till you get paid this month, then I'll talk to you. Um, oh, that's true. So my favorite set of all time is the nineteen sixty two tops. Uh, it's one. It's another one of those top set that has a classic wood grain kind of border. The eighty eight tops is similar to that. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier the eighty nine upper deck. Their, their initial yes. release, absolutely beautiful cards. And of course, as you mentioned, the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card is really the card of that set. But the pictures were just, you know, tops at that point was still kind of, as everyone was, was still kind of like a, a head and shoulders kind of posed shot. And all of those upper deck cards were these beautiful pictures of action shots and they they had a like not quite as large picture on the back but it was in color and it was just they were so pretty i still love all of those upper deck those first couple of years i still oh, have all yeah. those it was it was a higher end card it, yeah. you know it was made from a little bit more of a sturdy material made for collectors more so glossy it was glossy pictures. too it was and each one had a little hologram on it Yep, 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 Take yep. To make sure that it was authentication. The first <laughs> kind right. of authentication in baseball. 
Um, I also love the scorecards because they likewise, I think they came out in 90, but they were likewise uh, very colorful and, and just different from, from Tops or Donruss or Flair. Now, the, the scorecards did leave me into a life of crime. And I'm going to tell you a story only because I'm fairly positive that the statute of limitations has been lifted <laughs> from from the, the late 80s. I used to, there was a Woolworths in, in the mall. So that tells you how long ago this was. It was in the mall. Um, it was right next to an actual baseball card shop. So I'd go to the baseball card shop every week. They knew me there. They'd pull Ricky Henderson cards for me. I'd buy a couple packs. They'd put it in my bag. I'd be out of there. Go next door. And Woolworths had just this huge bin in the back corner of score packs. Now, first of all, the first couple of years of score packs, you could see through the back of the cover. Yes. So I could go and you could press and you could usually, you'd always see whatever the card was in the back, but you could usually see the one behind that. So you got to know what was in each pack. So I would scour through these and then it was in the back. No one was looking. I would just find the good ones. I'd just put them in my bag of cards I'd already bought and I'd walk right out the store. (laughs) Sneaky. Do not do this, kids. I do honestly feel bad to this day because I was just a little jerk. Um, But... (laughs) That is how I got my my first couple of score sets completed. But um, it's a very yeah, proper but... name for having something that's been stolen. You you know score <laughs> score. <laughs> so did you did you collect baseball cards much? I did. I, I was a huge fan of baseball cards. I got into it right about nineteen eighty four eighty five. And, you know, again, it was there wasn't the real high quality card until Upper Deck of 89. That became sort of the my focus was getting as many of those Upper Deck cards as popular as possible. Um, and then it, it, the, the premium stuff started coming out, you know, Fleer Ultra mm-hmm. or, you know, everybody had to do their own like higher quality card, too. And yep. that was part of what you spoke of earlier in flooding the market. Tops Stadium Club. I remember that. That yep. was their high end stuff. Yeah, I mean it through through college we would still go buy boxes and and collect them. But yeah, I I at one point had every Ricky Henderson card that was ever made, but they just I mean, you know, even after we retired, they kept coming out with more and they're so they're so niche now some of them that they're so expensive that I'm just, you know, I I'm just I got better things to spend my money on, more other Ricky Henderson stuff that I can, you know, look at more tangible stuff. So yeah, I have this, not bought a card. The, for the a whole while. Um, idea of collecting for the sake of collecting your favorite players—it just really has gone by the wayside. Yeah, and and you know, there's just so much memorabilia that people make now that's not card real. I mean, baseball memorabilia in general is just such a huge market now. You know, sure. I've got a Ricky Henderson candy dish. So I got things like that I can collect other than, you know, just more baseball cards. But that's so that's that's a quick look at something that I'm guessing is part of a lot of baseball fans, childhood and baseball cards. So fun times with that, uh, looking at the uh, little clock here in the studio, uh, it is pointing at the time the part of the show that everybody likes to sing along to, so that's going to lead us into second best. Your second best Better than most of the rest Not better than number one 
number one is better than anyone. So um, if you are just joining us for the first time, let's lay down the ground rules of second best. Either Mark or myself will come up with a topic. We will then uh, let the other person go and capitulate on their answer as to what they think the second best response is. They can also tell us what the first best response is, but the second best response, uh, well, the person that came up with the question will give their answers. And then uh, after we've both given the answers, we have a fight to the death to see whose answer was the best. Uh, So Mark, you are on the clock today. It is your topic. What uh, would you like to know is my second best response to? I don't even know if that was a question, but what's the question? The the question is, Jeff Paulson, who is your second favorite? Let's put it this way. What is the second best outfield throwing arm you've ever seen? Got it. A gun. We're looking for a hose. We're looking for a rifle. A cannon. That's right. Now, I'll go ahead and answer first um, to give you some time to ponder this uh this one of these questions of life um i'm gonna actually start off usually i start off by saying who my number one is and then filling in the blank for second best but this time i'm going to tell you straight up my second best the uh the second greatest arm i've ever seen was ichiro suzuki i figured he would be on, on this list somehow yeah he you know and you can go back to the days when he first started in playing in the U.S. and guys would run on him and test his arm, and pretty soon they stopped testing his arm entirely. Terrence, Terrence Long, we're looking at you. The infamous uh, Terrence Long uh, laser to third base where he, he slid in, got tagged out, looked up, looked out at Ichiro like, you're not allowed to do that. Straight out of Star Wars, I believe. Straight out was... of Star Wars. That's right. So heading to third base is long the throw to third base and they've got him nailed at third base on a drunk madness throw by Ichiro. I'm here to tell you that Ichiro threw something out of Star Wars down there at third base. Uh, but yeah, Ichiro, I loved watching him play in, in every aspect, but man, it was he just didn't run on him. He could always get the ball there. You know, he weighs 150 pounds or whatever, and he's got these skinny arms, but man, can he hit, and boy, can he throw. So he's my second best of all time. Second only to a man who I look at as the outfield arm, the the deity of outfield arms, and that would be Jesse Barfield. Oh, wow. That's a great pull right there. Um, that guy... I saw him pick up balls in the right field corner, turn around and throw all the way home. If if the ball left his hand four feet off the ground, it got to the catcher four feet off the ground. He threw strikes from three, 350 feet away. It was amazing. Just watching Jesse Barfield throw the ball. I, I, would, I would sit there in the stands and hope a ball got hit his direction. Even if he didn't throw somebody out, I just wanted to see him show the arm off by throwing it all the way home or throwing it all the way to third base. The guy had the most amazing rifle gun of an arm that I've ever seen, and I can't imagine anyone. I mean, maybe it'll happen, but I can't imagine anyone with a, a an arm like Jesse Barfield again. He was unbelievable. That is a great answer. I Thank am. I, I'm. Yeah, that makes me happy. Jesse Barfield. That's good. So I have got. I've got four people that I got to narrow down. Now, two of them 
are are you know contemporaries and they both once on the a's and one used to be on the a's um and i'm gonna go with my first one my first i and i unfortunately never got to see this gentleman play uh he's was actually just in the news recently because uh, on jackie robinson day there's talk about maybe retiring this guy's number across all of baseball as well and he just had a cannon and i'm talking about roberto clemente oh yeah so, you know, again, I never got to see him play. Of course, he passed away way too early uh, on the, the first or no, it wasn't the first day. I think it was an off day during the season. He piloted a plane to go take relief, um, you know, some food and, and medical supplies to uh, to Central America and his plane crashed and he unfortunately passed away. But he had an absolutely legendary arm. From the outfield, there's not a whole lot of clips you can see, but if you search YouTube, you'll find plenty of clips uh, of him and his cannon. Now, my second best arm is going to be tough. One name I want to mention, I'm not, I, I'm going to put this at probably the fourth best, is Paul O'Neill of the Yankees and the Reds. Mm-hmm. He had a gun out there did. In, in right field. I am going to have to choose between between Yoenis Cespedes and Ramon Lariano. Wow. So these are obviously both guys that are still playing. Uh, Cespedes, of course, is probably best known for his time on the A's when uh, they were playing in Anaheim. Uh, I believe the runner was on first base. There's a double down the left field line. He goes over and gets a glove on it right before the foul line, and he misplays it, and it bounces away, and they send the runner home, and he throws on the fly from deep left, the deep left corner right by the by the wall, on the fly to, it was, I don't know, it might have been Jason Kendall. I'm not sure who was behind the plate for the A's that time, and they get the runner. It was incredible. It was the play of wow. the year. You can find it anywhere online. And then, of course, Ramon Lariano, the laser right now for the A's, has th- I think he's got five or six outfield assists already this year. Um, and then yesterday, uh, on Sunday, he robbed a home run, just incredible rob of, of a home run in center field. And there was a runner on first who had already rounded second base. And from <laughs> he landed in on the track and, you know, threw it on the fly about 15 feet over first base. Uh, but it was backed up by Nick Hunley there, and they and they got the double play. And then, of course, last year was the play of the year when he went deep into left center field, made a catch that only Willie Mays could make, and then from right in front of the wall on the fly got it back to first base in time to double up the runner. I have to say that I, I feel like I'm being sucked in by by him doing so well right now, but I'm going to have to say Ramon Lariano right now is the second best outfield arm I've ever seen. Wow. I tell you what, um, you may be dead on with that one because I've seen some highlights too. And uh, man, what a what a gun he's got! I I like the answer. A hashtag don't run on Ramon. Yes, yes, and I never would. No, I would be. I would have been too busy watching him. Of course, I don't. I, run I go to. Anywhere. I I'm kind of like you when I when I'm there at games. I just want it to go to center field. Whether he makes the catch or not, <laughs> I want to see him. that throw back to to first base yesterday was registered yeah. at over a hundred miles per hour. Wow, I did see the highlight. It was impressive. He could pitch from center field <laughs> and throw it faster than some guys, you know, can from the mound. Uh, 
I'd like to see that happen too. Let's see, Major League Baseball, make it happen. You know, we're really contest. moving the mound. We're really moving the mound back. Not, yeah. we're not moving it back. You know, a foot. We're moving it back to center field. It'll be the new skills contest at uh, the All Star Weekend. You know, <laughs> pitching from center field. Put that garbage can. Just lay it on home plate. See who can get it in there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, those are some. I, that was a fun question. Um, I feel again. I feel a little bad being so contemporary with my second best, but then I felt good about about Clemente and you well, mentioning Jesse Barfield just made me happy. <laughs> I'll I'll never forget Jesse. Uh, he, man, that guy. I'm gonna see if he'll come on the show and just talk about his arm. Yeah, that's it. I'll look him up in the old Rolodex here. <laughs> <laughs> you do that, Jesse. Talk about the arm. Come on the show. You can even uh, promote whatever it is you promote these days. I think his I think his son is in the majors or has been bouncing up and down. He's one yep. of one of those many many players from the '80s and '90s that now have their kids, you know, doing yeah. good great stuff. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's going to about wrap up this show. Like to remind everybody here that uh, we are on social media. We can be found at Two Strike Noise. That's T W O Strike Noise on both Instagram and Twitter. We're very active, especially on the Twitter, posting stuff about this show, just other stuff that we see around baseball. Um, feel free to you know drop us a DM. Uh, we're more than happy to answer any questions. Uh, we'd also super appreciate if you could go wherever you're listening to our uh, our, our show here, if you could go and, and leave us a review. Uh, just tell the world, tell your mother, your father, even your sister what you're listening to. We'd sure appreciate it. You know, feel free to help us out. That that really does help us out because that helps uh, when people are searching for, for baseball stuff to to get us out there. So we would really appreciate that. But uh, Mark, this was a good show. I, I enjoyed this. Uh, some good, some good conversation today about yeah, baseball. Good times kind of took me back there with those, uh, with the uh, baseball card stuff. That was, I mean, do you remember how desperately everybody wanted as many 1988 Donruss, Greg Jeffries rookie cards as they could get? Oh boy. I've between those and Sam Horn. I, <laughs> my yes. goodness, I've got, I've got just boxes full of those two cards. Yep. Yeah. That was the it All right. All right. It sure was. Well, let's do this again next week. What do you say? Yeah, I'm in. What the heck? All right. I, I will make space in my calendar. I'll clear some things out. We'll have another show next week. Um, so for uh, myself, Jeff Paulson, my co-host, Mark A. Johnson, thank you very much for joining us on Two Strike Noise. Thank you all. God bless you. Have a great day.